Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the story that has shocked Canada once again, the discovery of unmarked graves on the site of a former residential school, this time in Saskatchewan. 751 graves discovered once again using ground-penetrating radar technology. And it follows, of course, the discovery in Kamloops of 215 unmarked children's graves there. Former Senator Murray Sinclair, who headed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, warned Canada immediately after the Kamloops discovery, prepare for more, prepare for more graves to be found. And, of course, he was right, and likely more to come. Let's discuss now with my guest, Rye Moran. Rye is a member of the Red River Métis. He is the former director for Statement Gathering at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He is the founding director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. He's now at the University of Victoria, and I'm pleased to welcome him. Rye, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, the commission that you worked with did some of the important uh, and crucial early investigations in, into this tragic situation that we face now, documenting uh, thousands of confirmed deaths at, at residential schools. And when we hear the discovery of more unmarked and undocumented graves, I, I imagine that does not surprise you with everything that you heard at the commission. Would that be fair to say? It doesn't surprise me, yet I'm still surprised, if that makes sense. Uh, You know, the numbers that just came out this week out of uh, of Saskatchewan are are quite shocking. And even the numbers that have come out of Kamloops, I mean, we knew that there were kids buried in all of these locations. There's never been any doubt of that. That's why there's been calls to action issued for this ongoing work to continue. But I think the numbers are really quite staggering, and I'm really think that we're going to see a lot of really additional staggering numbers as we move forward yeah man it's just it's absolutely tragic and i I suspect you're right we'll have to brace ourselves for more here let me play this here for you rye this is uh florence sparvier from the cowessas first nation on, on just talking about her time at this particular school in saskatchewan it made us believe we believe we didn't have souls and that was the ultimate uh desire of all of us to how can we be better, do better? And, and sometimes it's, it's really hard to know. Okay, Rye, what can you say about the experience of children at these residential schools and what you learned at the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? We heard just an, uh, an unbelievable uh, number of stories from survivors across the country And there were a number of common themes, obviously. Uh, The loneliness, the hunger, uh, really the starvation, uh, the dehumanization that happened for so many of these students where they were called names, they were uh, forced to adopt Western names or Christian names, they were called numbers. Uh, We heard absolutely horrific accounts of abuse and sexual violence. And we heard that all of this was done on multiple fronts. This was an attack on the child's spirit, it was an attempt 
to break the bonds between parents and their children and children and their parents. It was an attempt to teach these children that their cultures, languages, uh, identities, and histories do not have a place in Canadian society. Inversely, though, inversely, and what is so amazing is how strong and how brave these kids were and how much strength we still see in the community today as these communities are still facing this history and still standing up in front of Canada, still demanding a fundamental human rights framework in this country, still saying to Canada that we can and must do better. And that strength, that resilience, that incredible fortitude to even make it through these schools is also something that we really have to hold dear right now and and celebrate and, and really recognize those survivors for what they've gone through. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission that you work so closely with documented uh, several thousand deaths of children at these facilities. Do we know, are we able to discover how how these children died? I mean, was it from a variety of causes? Uh, and we've heard like that, you know, a lot of kids died from disease. Is that what you found out? Yeah. Uh, so the, there was an entire volume of the Truth and Reconciliation's final report dedicated to this specific issue, the specific issue of missing children and unmarked burial sites. Uh, certainly disease played a significant role in the uh, deaths of children, but this is not disease like we can understand it in outside of these residential school contexts. We have to understand that the residential schools themselves were significant and major contributors to the spread of disease and the untimely death of these children. These schools were actually breeding grounds for the spread of tuberculosis and influenza and other infectious diseases. That's because they were underfunded, that's because the food was so terrible, that's because there was all these layers of trauma that were happening on top of it. There's certainly lots of stories of children that, that died trying to get back home to their families, trying to run home. You know, Gord Downey made Channy Wenjack's story very, very famous in that regard, but that's just one of literally hundreds, if not thousands of stories of that. And then, of course, we've heard lots of stories that uh, really signal some form of criminal intent or criminal action, Uh, death due to beatings, death due to uh, kids being thrown downstairs, you know, a family member seeing their their child when they, if they actually see their child and the child being black or blue or or beaten uh, severely. So there's a really significant, bad, dark history that we have right in the midst of this country. And that's where the the truth, the truth-telling time that we're in right now is so important. Yeah, for sure. Speaking to Rye Moran, former director for statement gathering at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Murray Sinclair uh, at one point asked the the previous conservative government for some additional funding to do more investigations uh, into the residential schools. I want to play a short clip here for you of, uh, of Mr. Sinclair and then get your thoughts. Here's Murray Sinclair. If we have it. Do we have that, Tim, that clip, Murray Sinclair? We submitted a proposal because it was not within our mandate, and we asked that it be funded by the government, and that request was denied. Okay, the request was, as I recall, was for $1.5 million, right, Rye? That's right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, and what was that? What did the commission want to do with that, those funds? So what the commission wanted to do and needed to do with those funds was ded- create a dedicated missing children program and project and initiative right within the TRC and and to fund that specifically because at the outset of the commission's work the question of missing children was really starting to surface in the community 
very loudly at that time. There's actually a lot of media in around 2008, 2007 around this very issue. So the commission said, this is going to be a big piece of work. We need specific funding for this. Are you willing to support us? You know, like a lot of requests that the commission made of the government, uh, really sometimes of the parties as well, that commission, uh, the, the request was not taken seriously. And that's why the commission ultimately had to pass some of this work on to the rest of Canada through the calls to action because its mandate, again, was, was kind of fettered in this regard. Last question for you, Rye. Uh, Murray Sinclair also has been calling for the release of, of all records uh, on this matter. And let me play a short, another short clip here for you from the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissioner's Murray Sinclair. Stop hiding the documents to force the churches who have documents to disclose those documents so that we can get to the truth. What can you say about the status of this? Like, What documents are missing and where, where are these documents and will they be disclosed? Yeah, it's a big question. I mean, on the one hand, that was a big part of the work that we did as a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and the archive does exist out of the NCTR in Manitoba. We did collect millions of records. But I can also say inversely, that has been exceptionally hard fought for, and there's still more work to be done. I mean, I've pretty well personally been in, involved in some kind of residential schools record litigation now for the better part of 10 years. This has been an uphill battle. There have been many parties, including the government of Canada, that was not forthcoming with their records. And I think right now what we're seeing is a clear and pressing need to make sure and to do additional due diligence to make sure that we've left no stone unturned, that all of the archives have been comprehensively searched. That's the least we can do for survivors. That's the least we can do for their families. And all entities, government of Canada and churches, need to be very, very transparent, redouble their efforts to make sure that we've got every single piece of paper possible. Right. thank you for coming on today, and thank you for your service to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and I certainly agree with you. It's an important time for truth-telling now, and I appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on. All right, welcome back to the show, and here we go now with the debate over electric scooters in the city of Vancouver, e-scooters. Now, there's a craze for these things right now. You see them everywhere. These are those stand-up kick scooters. They've got the stand-up handlebars, battery-powered, and these things can book it, too. They're supposed to go 24 clicks an hour. They can go faster than that, for sure. Now, technically illegal on the streets of B.C. unless a city decides to do a pilot project. Should Vancouver allow these e-scooters? Let's discuss now with my guest, Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry. He represents the Green Party at City Council. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Councilor, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for being here. Okay, Pete, do you see these things a lot in Vancouver? Are these things getting more popular right now? Uh, yeah, you certainly see a lot of them. You know, as, as as you might know, Mike, I'm a pretty avid cyclist. That's my main way to get around. So I I'm I'm out there on the on the bike routes and on the streets, uh, and you see quite a few of them for sure. And and they they do, as you alluded to, go pr- pretty fast. Um, yeah. Or they can. And uh, you know, you, you will sometimes see more reckless riders out there, and they're they weaving in and out of bike traffic and what have you. So they're they're noticed for sure. Have you ever tried one? I have, yeah. The, the, you know, there's a couple of the bike or the scooter share companies who've been lobbying council for the last couple of years to to bring scooter share into the city of Vancouver, which is a slightly right. different concept that almost got approved as an amendment in this motion that we had at council last week. Uh, but but it 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 died at the end. But um, 
they've 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 come by and they've showed us the scooters and we've tried them out and okay so what uh, is the you know, i mean the interesting thing with the, there's a real pickup on those scooters so if if you don't know what you're doing you can you can bail pretty quick Oh yeah. Okay. So, what is the status of these scooters on the streets of Vancouver right now? Are they technically illegal right now in the city? Uh, they were until uh, the vote yesterday that happened in council. So, uh, the provincial government approved a pilot to try out micro mobility devices, specifically stand up scooters, uh, and they allowed six cities across British Columbia to uh, check it out. So, North Van, West Van, Vancouver, Kelowna. I forget who else. Um, so uh, we had a staff recommendation on bringing forward this pilot for the stand-up scooters, um, but not the share scooters. And as I mentioned, there was an amendment, an attempt to bring in the share scooters that did fail at council. But the majority of council did vote uh, in support of of changing our, our bylaws and our streets bylaws to allow uh, stand-up scooters. Um, I think I might have been the only one voting against it, actually. Okay, why did you vote against this? You know, um, other, I mean, it, it's been an issue for a lot of cities grappling with, with the, the stand-up scooters. Now, the shared scooters have a lot of issues because they're, they're dockless share scooters and they end up lying on streets and, and blocking sidewalks and create a real accessibility issue. Uh, my real big concern with, with uh, this pilot is that... Um, it, it really doesn't indemnify the city of Vancouver at all. And in fact, it, it does increase our liability. So just uh, last month, the city of Toronto, uh, their council unanimously voted to repeal their e-scooter pilot, uh, opt out of the provincial pilot there, and actually ban all, all stand-up scooters in the, in the city of Toronto. Wow. And key for them was recognizing that you know the, the the geometry of these stand-up scooters and the, and the small wheel size and the, and the fact that there's not a lot of standards of, of of wheel traction and size and that kind of thing actually um, put put a, a liability on on the city that they're not prepared to accept. Now in Toronto, they cited the the notion you know there's a lot of potholes from from frost heave. They've got streetcar tracks, any number of these things. We know that that uh, accidents on on stand-up scooters about double that of, of uh, just regular bicycles. And it's okay. in no small part because of the, the, they're not, they're, they're, they can bail on these uneven surfaces. Okay, so despite your vote against it for the reasons you just articulated, this did pass council yesterday. So does that mean that these e-scooters are now legal in Vancouver? Uh, yeah, they'll, well, I mean, technically it'll have to come back with a, an actual final bylaw for us to pass, I believe. Okay. Um, but yeah, for all intents and purposes, they are now legal in the city of Vancouver. Okay, and where would you be allowed to ride them in Vancouver? Like, can you ride them just on any street? Uh, side streets and and um, and bike paths. Yeah. So part of the argument as well was was, and this is an issue that I've been um, pretty vocal on, is trying to get um, a blanket speed limit reduction in the city of Vancouver. So it allowed the city of Vancouver to say, okay, well, city of Vancouver, all residential side streets are thirty kilometers an hour. As it stands right now, the default speed limit for the city of Vancouver is 50 kilometers an hour, which arguably does not create a very safe environment for uh, cycling or or stand-up scooters, as the case may be. Um, and, and the province still hasn't given us that ability. It's a pretty simple stroke of the pen for the provincial government to um, allow the Motor Vehicle Act to be amended so cities can set yeah. their own default speed limits and, and post higher speed limits on arterials, obviously, but on the 
on the side streets, which make up you know more than 80% of our road network, those really should be slowed down, especially if we're going to be contemplating things like stand-up scooters and the liability that comes with it. Okay, do you think these things... So I feel like the province has downloaded the liability on us, to be honest. Ah, interesting. Okay, do you think... Right. Do you think these things are like a menace or what? Because we had a guest on the show here earlier this week from uh, Evie's Skate Shop in Vancouver, which sells these uh, electric scooters, these e-scooters, and they make the case that these are getting more and more popular. They can't keep them in stock. They're flying off the shelf. They argue that they're safe. They're efficient. They save you money on gas. Um, you know, they're fun to ride. But, you know, so some people are saying, oh, this is like a personal transportation revolution. Is that what it is? Or are these, are they, are these things a menace on the street? Are they, are they dangerous, do you think? Uh, you know, I mean, any, any, anything's a menace in the, in the hands of a, of a negligent uh, and inconsiderate operators. You know, you could say the same thing, thing about cars and bicycles and, and pretty much any kind of transportation thing. If they're not done, utilized with care, uh, they, yeah, they can become a menace. And I've, you know, I've certainly seen lots of folks who are responsibly out there and respectfully using stand-up scooters, but I've also seen some outrageous behavior. I saw one guy the other day, he was wearing a full combat face mask and he was weaving in and out of bike traffic like a crazy man. And, and it was a, that was super reckless, um, almost to the point of causing other people to wipe out, which obviously, uh, is, it is, isn't a sort of respectful way to, to use a vehicle. So I would say that's the case for pretty much anyone. For me, I think the issue is more about the exposure to liability for the city of Vancouver that has me concerned. And, and we've had some, you know, legal opinions weigh in that suggest that there is cause for concern. And obviously, the city of Toronto felt the same way, and that's why their council unanimously voted to to, to ban e-scooters in that city. Which, from a consumer protection point of view, obviously would be not great if you were one of the purchasers of an e-scooter in Toronto and then found your city turned around and banned them a couple of months later because they were actually concerned about the liability profile okay we're going to watch this closely and we'll see how it goes counselor pete fry thanks a lot for coming on today to talk about it hey no problem your brain needs support and new ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health made with scientifically backed ingredients like thai ginger l-theanine and caffeine brainy chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus stay chill or get energized be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the danger to pedestrians now from dangerous drivers. And I'm talking about drivers who actually think they are doing pedestrians a favor and being polite to them by stopping and waving them to cross the street. Everybody has seen this. Maybe you've done this yourself. You've got a pedestrian waiting to cross the street, typically jaywalking, and the polite driver stops and waves that pedestrian to go ahead and cross the street. To critics of this behavior, this is known as the wave of death. 
I highly recommend to you a very entertaining YouTube video on this topic by National Post reporter and columnist Tristan Hopper. Follow me on Twitter. I've just uh, tweeted, posted it there for you at Mike Smith News on Twitter. You can check it out there at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S M Y T H. I got Tristan standing by here, but first, let's have a, a listen to part of his video here. Have a listen. I stand on the side of the road, patiently waiting for an opening in traffic. Just then, some do-gooder screeches to a halt and waves me across. It's really no trouble. Please, your creator awaits. If they had driven past, I was only 30 seconds away from having a completely clear roadway. Not a car in sight. But thanks to them, I'm pressured to walk into traffic and pray that three other lanes of speeding cars are willing and able to come to a sudden stop because other drivers don't know when someone has magically decided to create their own road crossing. Okay, the wave of death. Let's talk to uh, Tristan Hopper about this now, the uh, very funny and entertaining writer at the National Post. Tristan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, cool video. I enjoyed it. And as I was watching it, uh, I was laughing. It's very entertaining and funny video, but I also thought it made a good point. And as I was watching it, I thought, yeah, I mean, I've seen, you know, who hasn't seen this a hundred times? You get a driver stops and waves at a pedestrian, go ahead and jaywalk, go ahead and walk into traffic. Like what, what got you onto this? Is this something that you've seen frequently yourself? Uh, I, I thought of it when I lived in Edmonton, uh, when, you know, I was doing some walking and there's not a tremendous amount of crosswalks. And, yeah, there was a particularly high proportion of drivers who thought, oh, I'm going to be a nice guy and, you know, stop. And it was one particular incident where, yeah, it was a, a four-lane crossing um, with not great visibility around the corners. And then someone stopped on the curb lane and said, like, oh, please go. And I was thinking, if I had crossed at that exact moment, I and the baby I was pushing in the carriage would, you know, be catastrophically killed. Um, so yeah, it got me to thinking one of the themes I like to attack at the national post is people who think they're doing the right thing, uh, who are actually making things worse. Um, this is a very common thing in Canada. Um, so yeah, this, this seemed like a problem worth addressing because, uh, it's, it's, it's insidious. Like there's, you know, we, we know what's killing people on roads, um, you know, speeding, drunk driving, et cetera. But this is particularly insidious because you've got these maniacs driving around thinking, Oh, I'm helping the community. Uh, when in fact they're enabling a very, very dangerous activity. Well, sure. I mean, first of all, you got the pedestrian is jaywalking. You know, I guess technically that's that's illegal. But I mean, you know, we we all do that. I mean, if you see a clear traffic, you cross the street, right? But yeah, yeah, you have to you have to jaywalk in. Well, yeah, right. Three three crosswalks. Well, sure. So okay, so you get a driver who stops, and I think the uh, the critical point here that you we I think you raised effectively in the clip we just played is that. When the one driver stops and thinks he's being polite and he's waving at the pedestrian to go ahead and cross, you don't like sometimes the, the view is blocked. Like another driver coming in another lane might not see that pedestrian walking into traffic. Yeah. Right? So may, maybe if you're on, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's the three other lanes you have to worry about. So it's not like that person is coming to a stop and then like, you know, getting out and laying cones across the other three, three lanes and like, don't worry, it's safe. Um, it's, it's just this incredibly narrow-minded politeness. We're like, well, my lane's clear, so it's safe for you. Uh, when in fact, um, you're pointing someone into an incredibly dangerous situation. I mean, I, the point I make in the video, if you did this in any other context, uh, where you just said like, oh yeah, you know, wander, wander onto the firing range. It's, I'm not shooting my gun. I'm sure everybody else is. 
Um, yeah, this would be seen as insane behavior, but for some reason, and I heard from some of these people, we posted this video, yeah. and then some of these people were like, you shouldn't blame me, you should blame the other drivers, I'm a nice person. And I just emailed them back and said, well, until you become God and you can control the other drivers, can you stop directing people into potentially fatal situations? Yeah, no, you're getting a lot of attention with this video for sure on YouTube. Another one that I've heard from people is like from pedestrians who say like, okay, yeah, I'm waiting to cross the street. I'm waiting for a break in traffic. And then you get the driver who stops for you and waves you across. And sometimes you get like a standoff, like the pedestrian does not want to cross. And the, and the pedestrian starts waving back and the driver saying, no, no, keep going, keep going. I don't yeah, want yeah, you to stop. was saying this got really ugly. Uh, she's a young, young lady and uh, was walking along. Uh, yeah, it was like some work fan that stopped. And she said, no, thanks. I won't be hit by a car. You just kill along. And the guy started like swearing at her and yelling at her. So, yeah, it's this like fake politeness mixed with like this aggressiveness. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, this is, I couldn't find a lot on the internet about this, which is weird because this is a very common Canadian problem. And I guarantee you this is getting people hurt. Yeah. I, I suspect you might be right. And it's one of those ones where I, I don't think I've ever seen this addressed in the way that you've done it too. And I just thought one of those ones where, yeah, I've seen this happen. This has happened to me. Um, when you take a look at the, the general pedestrian statistics in, in Canada right now, like we, I guess we've had, I guess there's a belief that during COVID we've had lighter traffic and maybe there's been fewer accidents, but I don't know, maybe the rate's going back up. But are, are, are a lot of pedestrians getting hurt? Uh, yeah, well, actually, if you look at um, developed countries, so c- countries in the OECD, uh, we're the only country where pedestrian deaths are getting progressively worse uh, each year. Um, so everybody are, everywhere else, they're getting better at uh, keeping pedestrians alive. It's getting worse here in Canada. And actually on uh, on COVID, uh, this has kind of been true um, everywhere around the world. Yeah, roads are emptier, so there are less crashes simply because there's fewer cars out there. But those few crashes that are happening are way deadlier um, because um, you have people with open highways saying, like, oh, it's fine, I'll just speed. And then so you have a lot of single car crashes. You have a lot of, like, um, like there was a, a whole bunch in Canada of motorcycle crashes. Uh, oh, yeah, single vehicle yeah. motorcycle crashes. So this is someone like, oh, I got the whole highway to myself. I'm going to do a wheelie, woo, to fly off the highway and die. So um, I couldn't find stats on what pedestrian statistics would look like uh, under COVID. But yeah, Canada's not a great place uh, to be a pedestrian. And I'm sure there's other reasons in addition to the wave of death. Uh, one thing is that our cars are just ridiculous. Um, so, you know, count how many just lifted trucks you see with bully bars on the fronts, um, you know, you know, picking up groceries in downtown Vancouver. Um, those things are much likely to keep someone alive if it hit them versus, say, you know, a Toyota Yaris. Okay. Looking at some of the comments generated by your video on YouTube on this topic, it, it's interesting to see the debates that kind of erupt over this issue. But I also see a lot of other people saying, okay, do this issue next. Like, what about the people who... Um, drive in the passing lane and force people to do a dangerous turn to the right lane where they sh- where they should be instead of going slow in the passing lane. Do one on the knuckleheads in the parking lot who who don't know how to drive properly in a parking lot. Like you're getting a lot of that. Like people sort of getting things off their chest about here's all here's all the other stuff that drives me crazy when I when I'm out driving. 
Uh, one thing uh, I heard from one reader, and she gave uh, pretty much a, a great maxim that sort of sums this all up. When she watched the video, she said, um, people should have bumper stickers that say drive correctly, not politely. Um, so it's this idea like we have rules of the road. We thought of those rules. We sometimes change the rules based on whether they're dangerous or safe. Just follow those rules instead of being out there making up your own rules, uh, thinking it's the right thing to do. Um, because, you know, if, if it was safe to just randomly stop and point people into traffic, you know, maybe that would be in the traffic rules. So um, I think if you're just predictable, and this is what I try and do as a driver, I mean, this is defensive driving 101. You're just predictable so people know what you're doing. They know what to expect. You use your turn signal, yada, yada, yada. Don't randomly stop in the middle of the road for no reason. If you do that, um, yeah. it's much more likely you are going to keep yourself and the people around you alive um, rather than you know rewriting the highway code because you think you're being a nice person. Okay, Tristan, I really, you got a lot of people talking about this one. Thanks for coming on today to talk about it. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the continuing saga of the murder hornets here now, right here in B.C. and next door in Washington State. They just discovered another murder hornet in Washington State the other day, more accurately known as the Asian giant hornet. This is an invasive insect. Lots of fears it could damage our honeybee population here in British Columbia. Okay, I am so excited uh, to welcome my guest, Dr. Justin Schmidt from the University of Arizona. Dr. Schmidt is one of the most famous entomologists in the world, the creator of the Schmidt Pain Index, which measures the pain severity of insect stings. He is the author of the book, The Sting of the Wild, the story of the man who got stung for science. And I'm just honored to welcome him. Dr. Schmidt, thank you for coming on today. Good morning. It's my pleasure. Pleased to meet you. Likewise. It's great to have you here. Before I get your take on uh, on the murder hornet um, situation, let, let's talk briefly about, about your, your career as an, as an entomologist and, and your famous creation of this uh, the pain index on, on stings. Like you've been stung, you've been stung probably what, by dozens of different uh, stinging insects and probably hundreds of times. Like how many times have you been stung, do you think? Oh, probably over a thousand times. I, I worked on honeybees for much of my career. As any, any beekeeper knows, you get lots of stings from honeybees, but probably about 70 or 80 different kinds of stinging insects in total. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And and you created this uh, the Schmidt Pain Index, which is famous in the world of entomology here now, to measure the severity of these stings, and you rank the pain by number one to number four. So before I ask you about a number four, like what is typically like a, a number one, like a low-level pain uh, stinging insect? That would be something like uh, one of the sweat bees. If you're back in the east in the summer in July, you notice around picnic tables and all in the afternoon, a sweat bee will come and lap sweat off the elbow. It's kind of a little sharp thing, kind of like a spark of static to your nose. Yeah. Another thing is some of the uh, European fire ants, which you now have in, for a number of years in Vancouver, would also be about a one. They're, they're not very painful. Okay, then it goes up from there. It goes from number one to number two, number three. Okay, let's go right to the top and talk about, about number four. Like, what is the most painful sting on your index? Well, there's two of them that are pr- pretty much equal. The first one is the tarantula hawk, which... You don't have in Canada, so you're deprived of a beautiful insect. 
But that said, it's kind of like having a 20,000-volt electrical line broken off from the telephone pole and the wind and landing on you. Now, of course, I've oh. never had that happen, but that's what you'd imagine. It just absolutely electrifying, shuts you down. And the best thing to do, as I tell people, is just lay down and scream because there's not much <laughs> else you can do with that much pain. The what other was, one that, is what the, was that one called? A, tar- a tarantula? Did you say hawk? Hawk wasp. Yeah, it's a tarantula hawk, hawk wasp. It's a great big uh, blue, blue-black-bodied iridescent wasp with orange wings. Wow, where where are they located in the world? Well, they get up to uh, Washington. I don't know if you have them in Okanagan or not. They might be there. They're, they're, they're wow. pretty close. They like kind of hot, warm places in the Okanagan. Maybe with global warming, we'll have them soon. Who knows? Wow. And have you have you been stung by one of those? Oh yeah. What usually happens when you get stung by them is they're kind of rare to find, and so when you find a big tree that has a lot of them going to the flowers. You tend to get greedy, and you catch two or three in your net, and you try to get them out into a jar. They're big. They're about, you know, five centimeters long, and they also have about a centimeter long stinger. So as you're trying to wrangle four or five of them all in this net, sooner or later you'll goof, and wham, you got it. Oh, man. Okay, that sounds terrible. Now, what's the other one there? You got a number four, your other example there. Yeah, the other one is the bullet ant. And oh, yeah. Central America, its disadvantage is that it throbs for 12 to 36 hours, just goes through unmitigating, excruciating, burning waves of pain that just hit a crescendo and then relax a little bit and then go back again. I kind of, being male, I can't personally attest, but kind of reminds me of what childbirth might be like, going up and down, none of it really pleasant, but... And unfortunately, at the end of it, you don't get a nice present like when you're pregnant in childbirth. <laughs> Nothing okay. positive. Okay, the bullet ant. That might be the most famous one I think you've identified, and I, I've read about your experiences. Like, When was the first time you got stung by a bullet ant? That was in 1979 in northern Brazil. I was, again, being greedy like entomologists. When you see a rare species, you want to get it at all costs. Well, it all costs, in my case, involved getting stung, which is a pretty high cost. Okay, what made you decide to uh, create the, the famous uh, Schmidt Pain Index to kind of scientifically analyze and, and rank the pain severity of these stings? Why did you decide uh, to do that? I was looking for a solution to the problem, and the problem was how can you compare the defensive value of one stinging insect to another? There's two ways. One, you can tell how much damage it does, and that's easy to measure. There's lots of tools for that. And the other was how much it hurts. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, the closest thing we'd ever had was the McGill pain scale, which is something developed in McGill for uh, measuring human pain, and that's a 10-point pain scale. But I thought that's too finely tuned, so I lowered it down to about four. That way we can compare when you're talking about, say, a bullet ant versus a honeybee. You can say, oh, yes, there's a very big difference. You don't want to get stung by a bullet ant. Honeybee, that's fine. If you're getting some nice honey, you know, well, that's just day's work and pass it off as being nothing major. Okay. Speaking to Dr. Justin Schmidt, the originator of the Schmidt Pain Index for stinging insects. So when you talk about the... The, the th- over a thousand times you've been stung by different different uh, varieties of insects. 
like are are all of those stings like accidental? This is something that happens to you when you're out collecting specimens in the wild, or do you ever subject yourself to like deliberately to a sting to to feel the pain? Kind of yes and no. I've never been stung by anything that really hurts intentionally. They all volunteer. I don't have to volunteer them. But the ones that I have stung myself personally are ones that look scary but actually aren't. And, for example, dirt dauber wasps or mud dauber wasps, long, skinny wasps, and they look very scary as they flit around, but they don't really hurt much. And I'd never been stung by one. I kept getting asked how much they hurt kept saying, well, I don't know. It's hard to get stung by them. So one day I finally had to grab three of them and force them to sting me. And I guess I could <laughs> say in one word the reason, response was underwhelming. It was just oh. completely trivial. Oh, okay. Okay. It didn't measure, that didn't really measure up. So what would have been a what, a one on your scale? Yeah, yeah, basically a one. Okay. Dr. Schmidt, let me ask you about, about the murder hornets here in uh, British Columbia and also next door in Washington State. Have you ever seen one of these Asian giant hornets? Have you been stung by one of those? Uh, yes and no. I, I worked with them in 1980 when I was in Japan working with a couple of Japanese and a Canadian researcher, and we were working on the Japanese giant hornet, which as far as I can tell is the exact same one that's come to you know, the Pacific Southwest in Vancouver and the Northwest in Washington State. And I never got stung by them because the Japanese were so protective and confident of treating their visiting guests well that they made darn sure I didn't get stung. So that's perhaps unfortunate because I, I can't relate from personal experience to how these feel versus some other things. I can guess, but that's about the best I can do. Okay, how dangerous are these invasive insects? Like, There's a lot of fear here in B.C. that if these uh, murder hornets, as they're colloquially called, uh, if they get established, they could wipe out our honeybee population. Is that a legitimate threat? Well, they wouldn't wipe it out. Beekeepers are much smarter than that. You have to give them credit. They're pretty easy to keep out of beehives. You just put screens, kind of half-centimeter mesh screening around all the entrances to the hive because the hornets can't get in that way, and the bees can get out. So they, they would be a nuisance, that's for sure, but... It wouldn't be devastating to the beekeeping industry. Just one more frontry they have to suffer. Okay. Is it important that we continue to track these murder hornets and, and wipe them out if possible? Is that what you would recommend? Or Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's kind of as an entomologist, I'm kind of heartbroken. In one response, there's such beautiful insects and such wonderful things. They're kind of like Muhammad Ali, dance like a butterfly and sting like a bee. <laughs> They're beautiful like a butterfly, but unfortunately they sting and cause a lot of pain. So it's with some mixed feelings, but I think overall you pretty much want to get rid of them. Dr. Schmidt, it's been a great treat to have you on the show today. Congratulations on, on everything you've achieved in your career and, and, and your book as well. And I appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much.